I'm talking about the good and the bad news about knowledge. So I'm a teacher uh, and knowledge is kind of what teachers trade in, I suppose. And I'm not teaching at the moment, I'm on holiday. So I've just kind of been going into, uh, I guess, remission or something as far as I, I, I haven't got a chance to be academic. So I decided we're going to be a little bit academic this morning. Um, we're going to talk about this guy, Frederick Nietzsche. Who's heard of Frederick Nietzsche this, uh, before? Anyone? A couple of people. He's got a sweet moustache, I know that much. Although apparently it scared women away. Uh, he was quite a depressed man because of it, but he refused to get rid of it, so go figure. But anyway, in 1882, Frederick Nietzsche published a book called The Gay Science. Um, it's got nothing to do with homosexuality. He was German and he wrote it in German and the title was in German. I think you can see it there. The Fräulich Weissenschaft or something like that. That's my pretty good German there. Um, so one of the English translations was The Gay Science. But there was other ways that you could translate it and one of the possible translate, translations was uh, The Joyous Wisdom. So this book by Nietzsche uh, contained wisdom or science which according to him would bring happiness and joy. Now, some of you might already know something about Nietzsche. Or perhaps maybe even read the book. Has anyone read this book? No? Anyone read any Nietzsche before? One or two people? Um, if you do know something about Nietzsche, you know that this is an empty promise. Uh, the book does not contain any sort of science or wisdom that brings joy. As much as Nietzsche might have thought that he had discovered the wisdom that brings joy, he actually invented something called nihilism, which is the belief that everything is meaningless and he actually went insane before dying alone. So just by that, you can tell that there's something wrong with his ideas. Why are we talking about Nietzsche this morning? Well, one of the main things that Nietzsche likes to talk about in this book and many of his other books is God. He's quite interested in talking about uh, God. He says quite a bit about God. Does anyone know what the most famous thing that he said about God was? Pat? God is dead. Excellent. God is dead. That's what he said. He said it um, in, as a part of uh, the parable of the madman, which is in the gay science. So let's just have a, a look at what he said there. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, where is God? I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Nietzsche's solution to his idea that God was dead was that we needed to become the new gods. But I should probably clear up that Nietzsche didn't actually think that God at one stage existed and that somehow humanity had managed to kill God. Um, all he was really saying was that the idea of God was no longer necessary for society. But it was more than that. He was actually trying to suggest that people that believed in God had managed to do themselves out of the belief of God through the way that they acted and thought. <clears throat> Science, progressivism, Darwinism, the Enlightenment, all of the things that had happened from about the 1500s up until the late 1800s when he was writing had kind of contributed to the fact that God was not only no longer necessary, but for those that believed in him, they had actually 
virtually killed him off in their mind. And Nietzsche's solution to this was that we needed to become gods. He actually uses the term in German, Übermensch, which literally means Superman. And he completely thought that we would become the Superman of the new age, that we would need to become the Superman, kind of not, not necessarily develop some sort of crazy mutant powers, but that we would need to start tapping into all of the abilities that we have. And he kind of saw that that had been happening um, through the progress of science and everything up until that point, and if that continues on, then we will naturally, by evolution, become supermen. He said that we must become godlike supermen who would rise to the challenge of being the controllers of their own destiny, their own meaning, and their own mortality and their morality. Now, why am I interested in this lesson of history of philosophy this morning? Well, perhaps you can see, I'm hoping that maybe you can see, a little bit of a similarity between this the empty promise of Nietzsche, and another suggestion, another empty promise from the Bible. We turn to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The promise and the lie of Satan was to make Adam and Eve into gods. That's what he said. You would be like God. And this is the same as what Nietzsche thought was the next step of evolution for humanity. We must become gods. And the way to do this in both Nietzsche's idea and in the empty promise of, and the lie of Satan is through knowledge. Have you ever thought that it's, I mean, that it's interesting that uh, the forbidden fruit was called the knowledge of good and evil. It's a strange thing to call the fruit that was forbidden. Everything in the garden was good. Adam and Eve literally had no concept of evil. Just stop for a second and think about that. See if you can imagine having absolutely no concept of wrong, of evil. I think it's virtually impossible for humans to do it. I think it's virtually impossible for us to understand. As soon as we think about any choice that we have, we think we could do something that's wrong. We could do something that's evil. We could sin. It's very difficult for us to get ahead around it. But if you do want to see what I think is one of the best examples to, to try to help you to get your head around what it must be like, you can read a book by C.S. Lewis, which is called Perilandra. Perilandra is the second book in a trilogy of science fiction novels. And Perilandra is the story of the planet Perilandra. And on that, there is a man and a woman, and they are the original inhabitants of that place, and they haven't had the fall yet. So the fall hasn't been experienced there. So it's just two people, kind of like the Adam and Eve of that place. The woman there is called the Green Lady, and the man is called the King. And God sends Ransom, this guy from Earth, to Perilandra to try to stop the Green Lady from committing the first sin. 
to try to stop this other man, Weston, who would come from uh, Earth as well, who was kind of acting as Satan, as the tempter. And there's this great line from it, possibly, I reckon, the most chilling line of any, anything that I've read of C.S. Lewis. This is what it says. And will you teach us death, said the lady to Weston's shape, where it stood above her. Yes, it said, it is for this that I came here, that you may have death in abundance. It's really, I mean, obviously Lewis is writing that on purpose to, to kind of parallel Jesus coming to bring us life and life to the fullest. But the green lady has never experienced a lie before in her life. She has no reason to think that this person, Weston, is not telling the truth. In fact, the idea of truth is foreign to her. Everything is truth. That's all she's ever experienced before. And so we have this beautiful innocence that she has. And innocence is something that we don't really focus on a lot these days anymore. But if you've got kids, I know that you know how important innocence is to try to protect the innocence of your children. The idea here to get at is that not all knowledge is good knowledge. Hopefully you can see that. Just because something can be known does not mean that it should be known and does not mean that it is good by definition. It's through a promise of knowledge that Satan tricked Adam and Eve and he said that the knowledge would turn them into gods. Because what we see that happens is that knowledge of good and evil quickly turns into knowledge to define good and evil. And it is through defining things that we get power over them. When we can define something, when we can choose what something means, we have power over it. That's why it's so important that God gives us meaning. He's the only thing that can. He's the only person that can. We try to define things and we think that we're doing it, but we're really fooling ourselves. And this is why Nietzsche said that we had killed God. Because through all of the new knowledge that humanity had, good and evil were no longer things that were kind of thrust upon us by God. In fact, he wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil that was calling people to go beyond the old, outdated ideas of morality. And it was a part of, combining with the idea of the ubermensch, the new humanity, the new civilization. Because humans had progressed so far, because they had learnt so much, they were able to do away with the idea of God, and in doing that, they did away with the idea of morality. And also the idea of meaning. We are our own gods, we create our own morality, we create our own meaning. Now, obviously, this isn't true. God defines good and evil and no one else. But of course, today, you probably know people that disagree with that. You you know people that disagree with the fact that God defines good and evil, and you've probably had conversations with people where they've kind of discussed how they make their moral decisions and it's based upon just whatever they can come up with in their head. Can you see the way that knowledge has taken over, people's ability to reason and to think has taken over? We live in a relativistic society where what is right for one person might not be right for another person and vice versa. So the question remains, have we become gods? Obviously we have not, but can you see that that's what humanity is trying to do? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying, we, we don't want someone else on our throne. We want to be the controllers. We want to be the gods. And this is not just modern man's problem, but men throughout times, throughout all times, their greatest desire to become their own god. It's a little bit of what the Tower of Babel was about. From Genesis 11. 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them uh, from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, isn't it interesting that God didn't want nothing to be impossible for them? That was his problem. You know, well, that's, that's what he had some sort of issue with. He didn't like the idea that these people would be unstoppable, would be able to do anything that they put their minds to. I think it's interesting that we live in an age today in which we virtually do have a common language, in which, you know, it is possible to communicate with people all over the world. And in fact, it's when people all over the world work together that some of the greatest scientific progress is made. Can you see, though, how contrary this thing of God saying, I don't want everything to be possible for them, how contrary that is to modern science. I mean, science is kind of built, science, progressive science is kind of built on the idea of doing what seems to be impossible now. Now, I'm not saying that science is evil. I should make that really clear. I'm not saying that we should all revert back to, you know, riding around on horses and living in caves and things like that. Although, I've got to be honest, a little bit of that is kind of appealing to me. I think that that would be cool. I think that there's probably things that we can learn from living like that. I'm not saying that flying is evil or mobile phones are evil or landing on the moon is evil. Although perhaps you would agree with me if I said that mobile phones can help us to be evil and that the internet is just as easy or maybe even more easy to use for evil than it is to use for good. What I'm saying is that each step that has been taken in science has had the potential to trick humanity into thinking that humanity is God. Just the potential. Now, humanity has got to make that decision, has got to allow itself to be tricked, but each step has had the ability, the potential to trick us. Each little bit of technology has the power to confuse you about how powerful you really are. Everyone in here has a mobile phone, most likely. No one in here has ever made a mobile phone. As far as I know, if you have, you're a genius. There are people out there that are that smart, but we are not those people. We use their technology and act as though we are that powerful, but we are just using the power of someone else. And when our mobile phones break, as mine did when I put it through the wash two weeks ago, no one can talk to me. Once again, I don't have much of a problem with that. It's fine. Technology and scientific progress is invariably always about the quest for control control over the limits and the constraints of our environment. You might remember last week, if you were here, Cole Patterson referred to the old saying that knowledge is power. The desire to control is inherently connected to the desire to know, because once humans know something, they think that means that they can control it, or at least predict it. It's like the weather. We can predict the weather, and in predicting the weather, it gives us a sense of power, a sense of control. I'll know whether I need to pack the right clothes, okay? 
doesn't mean we can control the weather at all, but at least we know that it's going to happen and it does give us that kind of sense of control. It has always been an eternal struggle to become God. And actually, this is what prevents a lot of people from coming to know Christ. Because knowing Christ, if you know Christ, it actually means accepting the fact that you are not in control, that you'll never be in control, that you are not God. And importantly, accepting that there's someone who made you, someone that wants the best for you, someone that loves you. It's easier and more comfortable for our modern-day society, which is obsessed with its independence and strength, to not believe in God, because that way they're answerable to no one. That way they can do whatever they want to do. And this is one of today's big, big problems. Relativism has extended into the world and into the church in such a way as to suggest that you can define good and evil for yourself. And yes, this is in the church in a big way. As an example, what happens when someone hears something in church that they disagree with? It's a good question. It's a question we should all ask ourselves sometimes. What happens if you're disagreeing with me right now? What happens if you hear something in church that you disagree with? Do people say, well, that's the teaching of the church, so I guess I must be wrong? I have to admit I've never heard someone say that before, other than Catholics. Catholics, they're happy to say it. They just do whatever they want anyway, but... Um, I don't hear people very often saying, that's the teaching of the church, so I guess I'm wrong. No, what they usually say is, well, that's the church's opinion, or that's his opinion, I guess he must be wrong. Because, of course, I'm right. Which is usually the way that it happens. Or even, they might say, it might have worked for them that way, but I've found a way to make my way work. My way works, so there's not a problem with it. If you can get it to work, it's fine. Or perhaps they might even leave a church and go to another church where the pastor only preaches what they already agree with. Not that there's a problem with agreeing with your church. That's a good thing. But it's an interesting question of what happens when you disagree. See, knowledge can become a problem because it always sets up your own knowledge as the knowledge that is right. It's your own powers of deduction, your own ability to see reality accurately, your own research or lack of research or your own complete lack of caring about it, and importantly, your own experience. At recent estimates, there are somewhere between 33,000 and 41,000 different denominations of the Christian church in the world today. So let's be conservative and say that's 33,000 different groups that all disagree, but all have one book to read and to work out. Now, Admittedly, a lot of those are going to be extremely similar and they're going to be different in practice rather than in belief. But 33,000 is a lot. It is a lot. Hopefully that goes a little way to help you realise that we can find ourselves in a real mess if we say, I'm going to lock myself in a room and me plus the Bible equals the truth. 100% definite truth. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Bible. The Bible's not the problem. We're the problem. Because we're not quite as honest and is impartial when it comes to what we read and how we read it and how we interpret it as we might like to think. We have favourite verses that we focus on and some that we never read because they're too problematic for the way that we currently think. We don't want to be pushed in that direction or whatever. The point is that knowledge, knowledge in and of itself, is not all it's cracked up to be because knowledge is simply what you think you know. The smartest people in the world are often the dumbest people in the world. 
And some of the smartest people in the world, the real geniuses that are alive today, they disagree with each other on fundamental things. If you can have two of the smartest people in the world disagree with each other on something, surely that should, alarm bells should be ringing about, well, one of them's right and one's wrong, but they've both got Nobel Prizes, so who do I believe? Who do I listen to? Just because you can reason your way through something, just because you can reason something one way or another does not mean that it is true. The great aspiration is not knowledge, it is wisdom. Can you use your mind to justify sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Yes, you can. You honestly can. Can you use logic and some clever questioning techniques to prove that it's okay to smoke marijuana? Yeah, it's legal in some countries. So obviously it's just arbitrary for what country you're in. Can you use the slippery slope argument in your favour to justify your drunkenness? Yes. Knowledge is limited because we are limited. Wisdom is far more important. Wisdom doesn't say, I've worked it out, let me do it my way. Wisdom says, God has worked it out, let's do it his way. But of course, this still becomes difficult because I'm still seemingly saying that you have to work something out. You have to work out what God's way is before you can do it. So, how do we aspire to wisdom over knowledge? Well, interestingly, the first way is actually to acquire knowledge. The real question is not, should I aspire to know more things, but rather, what things should I aspire to know, and from whom should I learn these things? These are questions that are more important, questions that we don't necessarily think about that much. See, I can show you the smartest people in the world. I can introduce you to the online pages of multiple PhD uh, holding sexologists. They're going to tell you all sorts of crazy gear. And they're smart and they have PhDs, so they must be right, right? I can give you a USB with videos of Richard Dawkins. You can go to the library and read books by Nobel Prize winners. These are the smartest people in the world. This is the knowledge that the world suggests aiming for. This is the information that the universities say you need. In fact, these people are the results of the modern university. But the wisdom of God is foolishness to man and vice versa. 1 Corinthians 3:18-20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Futile is a wonderful word to describe the wisdom of Frederick Nietzsche, which people hold, he, they hold him up as a genius, as, a, as someone who redefined reality for people a man who died insane literally screaming out at three o'clock in the morning in his own house i'm stupid because i'm god i'm god because i'm stupid repeated over and over and over again not a happy man his ideas did not work out well futile i think is a good word so here's a hint if you're doing things that non-christians think make a lot of sense people that haven't got a biblical worldview to help shape their idea of morality, then it's possible, not necessarily definite, but it's possible that you've used some earthly knowledge, some earthly wisdom to make your decision. If you've heard someone preach something, or if you've read something in the Bible and you're ignoring it, or redefining it to fit with today's society, or if you think that God would have written a different Bible if he wrote it today, one which is less interested in what happens in people's bedrooms and more interested in looking after the marginalised. 
In other words, if you think that God is a lefty progressivist that regrets writing the Bible that he left us, then you're using earthly knowledge. God is not sitting in heaven going, I can't believe I let that in there. If he wanted to change it, he would, and he's not. He knew what he was doing. He knew the future. He existed in the future, the past and the present at the time of leaving the Bible for us. The flip side is, if you know so much, if you've read so much, you've read the whole Bible, you've looked at all the commentaries, you've looked to so many smart people, even smart Christians, you can certainly find justification for what you're doing. You can certainly find justification for the way that you want to believe and the way that you want to live. 33,000 denominations and counting means that there's sure to be a church somewhere that already agrees with everything that you do and think. Therefore, submitting to that authority ends up looking a lot like submitting to what you already think, submitting to yourself. Now, this isn't a submit to authority talk because I don't really particularly think that you should submit to me, not in the kind of do what I say or else. You should submit to God. So what should be happening a lot is conversations and prayer because it's God that you should submit to. And if you're not submitting in all areas of your life to him, particularly asking him to convict you of sin that you don't currently think is sin, I think that's a really important part. It's easy to be convicted of sin that we think is sin, but what sort of cues have we taken from society that we just accept, that we just think that this is okay? This is where our knowledge needs to be pushed. This is where it needs to be wisdom and not just getting bits of earthly knowledge and kind of assimilating that with the parts of the Bible that we like. Asking him to convict you of sin that you don't currently think of as sin. If you don't do that, then the truth is that you're really only submitting to yourself. So, who do we find knowledge from? Well, my advice is to go broad and to go old. The older, the better. Because the older it is, the less likely that it has been perverted by current society or different ages or new ways of thinking or the Enlightenment. This is why I really like referring to and reading a lot of C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis isn't even that old. He's like 70 years old. Well, he's dead, obviously, but his writings are 70 years old. So go older. Go to Chesterton. Go to Aquinas, go to Thomas Akempis, go to Augustine. And of course, read the Bible. Actually read it. And also read broadly. This one's perhaps a little bit more challenging. Read Protestants and Catholics. Read Baptists, Presbyterians, Reformed, Charismatic, Pentecostal. But don't just read new books. Read old ones as well. In fact, C.S. Lewis himself warned against reading only new books. And he was a writer, and so he was talking about himself when he said this. He said... This mistaken preference for the modern books and this shyness of the old ones is nowhere more rampant than in theology. Wherever you find a little study circle of Christian laity, you can almost be certain that they are studying not St. Luke or St. Paul or St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, but, and I've added some modern ones because he was talking about people 70 years ago, but Piper or Keller or Warren or Houston or even myself, C.S. Lewis. Now, this seems to me topsy-turvy. Naturally, since I myself am a writer, I do not wish the ordinary reader to read no modern books. But if he must read only new or only the old, I would advise him to read the old. And I would give him this advice precisely because he is an amateur and therefore much less protected than the expert against the dangers of an exclusive contemporary diet. A new book is still on its trial and the amateur is not in a position to judge it. It has to be tested against the great body of Christian thought down the ages and all of its hidden implications, often unsuspected by the author himself, have to be brought to light. It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one until you have read an old one in between. And I would put that out there as a genuine challenge for all of you. 
If you don't read old books, if you've never read Augustine, I mean, they are hard to read, sure, okay? But so is the Bible, I think, particularly some parts in the Old Testament, you know, so slog through it. Try to get some old wisdom that's been around for a long time. Thomas Akempis's book, uh, The Imitation of Christ, has been around for like 1,200 years and is brilliant. And it is simple. It's very easy to understand. So this is the good news about knowledge, that knowledge about God can lead to knowing God more, but doesn't necessarily. The Pharisees, the scribes, they knew a lot about God, but they didn't even know him when he was standing right in front of their face. Remember, you are not saved by what you know. You're saved by who you know. You're not saved by what you know about Jesus. You're saved just by knowing him. The correct pursuit of knowledge is the pursuit of truth. And pursuing truth is always a good thing because Jesus is truth. Truth is a person. The pursuit of truth is always a good thing. But often when humanity searches for knowledge, it's not really truth that they're after. It's power. The bad news about knowledge is found in humanity's obsession with it and their ability to use it and abuse it by worshipping it. We talk a lot about idolatry here at the project. We kind of, we say, and the Bible says humans are created to worship and they worship unceasingly. Humanity's big problem is that they turn away from the creator and they stop worshipping the creator and they start worshipping created things. And the main created thing that humans worship is themselves. So to return to Nietzsche's claim that God is dead, it was our knowledge and our ability to reason or our ability to think that we were reasoning well. It was that knowledge to do whatever we wanted that has allowed us to kill the idea of God. In worshipping knowledge, we are actually worshipping ourselves. We have turned ourselves into gods. So next week, I want to talk about the repercussions of this. Next week, I want to say, well, what does society look like when we worship knowledge, when humanity has risen to the throne of God and God doesn't exist anymore? And I think all you need to do is look around at society to realise that it doesn't work out that well. But we're going to look at a few things. I actually think that next week is the really exciting week. This one's just kind of the introduction. Uh, We're going to look at um, what happens when we view humanity as God. I'll talk a bit about secular humanism and the desire to live forever, and talk about something called transhumanism, which, if you don't know about it, is very interesting. Transhumanists believe that through the combination of people and machines, we'll be able to live together, maybe only as our minds in machines. But God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, and people that don't believe in God and eternity still want to live forever. It is the great pursuit of the transhumanists and the futurists. And we'll be able to compare that to, I think, a great literary version of someone who lived forever who wasn't supposed to, and that was Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. He turned into something that wasn't natural. He turned into an unman. Uh, he turned into the same thing as the character of Weston was in the, in the story of Paralandra. So I hope that you can be here next week for looking at that and um, we'll go on from there. Thanks very much for listening.